unless you know the business, stay away. That's the advice of Alex Stewart, a restaurateur, speaking about the restaurant industry. It sounds like a warning about organized crime, no? Well, those two things, restaurants and mobsters, have been known to go together at times. We all know the restaurant scenes from our favorite mafia films. Some are so well-known, they've become gifts. Ray Liotta laughing uncontrollably at Joe Pesci. Michael Corleone assassinating Solozzo and the corrupt police chief with a gun that was planted for him in the back of a toilet. De Niro sitting across from Pacino in heat. Just two guys with a table between them escalating the plot. Gangsters and restaurants go together in our mythology. And those words of warning from Alex Stewart may well have echoed out to him from the mob-era ghost in the walls of his famed kitchen, Harvey's. Once known as the Restaurant of Presidents and originally located on Connecticut Avenue in D.C. by the Mayflower Hotel, Harvey's was just a five-minute walk from the Department of Justice headquarters. Alex Stewart bought the restaurant in the late 1960s, a couple of decades after its most infamous patron first ordered his lunch regular, steak and Caesar salad. In those days, Harvey's had separate gender dining rooms, which suited the steak and Caesar salad man perfectly. He was as well known for his misogyny as he was for his bushy eyebrows, white shirt, and Brooke Brothers suit. On arrival, a bottle of red wine waited for him at his table, the most secure and invisible from the door. And he'd usually dine with a deputy, a friend or advisor, and always an armed bodyguard. There, over lunch, the man would plot and plan his operations catch up on the state of affairs in the world, and keep an eye out for who else might saunter into the restaurant he treated as his own. He even signed autographs there for the rare soul brave enough to approach him and ask him for one. Despite the presidents that came and went, this man was arguably the most powerful regular ever to grace that restaurant, and everyone there knew it. But being the most powerful man in the room didn't always mean he was the smartest man in the room. And with respect to one other regular at Harvey's, even this man, with his epical ego, didn't hesitate to admit it. There was a genius, a man so brilliant, Mr. Brooks Brothers, Mr. Steak and Caesar Salad, gave reverence. William Friedman father of cryptanalysis, brain of army intelligence, and husband to Elizabeth. Author Jason Fagone, who may well have gotten this story from the Freedmen's own notes in their archives, gives us the scene where Mr. Powerful actually rises from his own table and walks over to William Friedman's without invitation. From William's point of view, Fagone writes, quote, There were times at the restaurant when the cryptologist sensed motion in his peripheral vision, when a shadow 
darkened the white cloth. He turned his head and saw J. Edgar Hoover standing there with the bottle of wine. Without saying a word, the FBI director nodded and poured wine into the cryptologist's glass. This was the moment that J. Edgar Hoover, the director who swept out the only two female agents when he took over the Bureau in 1922 and kept them out until his death 50 years later, was finally forced to acknowledge Elizabeth Friedman's existence and her skill. He needed her help. And here was her husband, sitting in his favorite restaurant, seemingly in need of a fresh pour of fine wine. That glass of wine, poured and enjoyed in the men's only dining room at Harvey's, very well may have been the first act in a long succession of events that saved the free world from the tyranny of Hitler and the Axis powers. See, it's not just mobsters who had their favorite joints. The spies had them too. When we were last with Elizabeth, a few episodes back, she'd just helped Hoover catch a ring of Hitler spies crawling around ONI's 3rd Naval District, the port and surrounding cities of New York and New Jersey. You remember, Lansky and Luciano's territory. That case, the Duquesne spy ring, put J. Edgar Hoover at the tip of our nation's counterintelligence spear, according to J. Edgar Hoover. Via the prowess of the FBI, Hoover effectively sold himself in the press as the great American defender against foreign and domestic espionage. He was spying on the spies, listening in on them, decrypting their coded messages, and then catching them in the act. Yet, the FBI did not have this capability. Hoover didn't have a code-breaking unit or a single cryptanalyst inside the agency. All of the work intercepting, decrypting, and interpreting the communications of the Access Power spies operating within our borders was done by Elizabeth and shared with the FBI by the Coast Guard. But these historical facts did not work for Hoover at the time. He had a legacy to burn into the record. He had his narrative to sell. To keep Hoover's mythology going, the requests from the FBI into Elizabeth's office continued to increase. The more she helped them, the more publicity Hoover sought. And it was pissing Elizabeth off. She was never interested in publicity. In fact, she vehemently shunned it. A decade earlier, after the damning press in the I Am Alone smuggling case, she laid down the law. Because they were written in a lurid manner, or because they contained assertions and statements quite untrue, I wrote a letter recording in writing my protests to the public relations of the Treasury Department, requesting that thereafter no one but no one from the world of the press or radio would be given permission to get so far as even an interview with me. Although that sounds personal, Elizabeth's outrage at the time, and from then on, was about protection, not for her own sake, but for the sake of national security. Remember the Gordon Lim case she cracked? 
the rare gems importer who was actually a drug-smuggling kingpin? Well, imagine, as we were careening into a world war, if Japan and the rest of our enemies knew that our greatest codebreaker could crack complex code written in Chinese character. With the stakes of codebreaking evolving and escalating from catching gangsters to defending a nation at war, any press covering our sources and methods was catastrophic to our own security and the security of our allies. You and I can grasp that. J. Edgar Hoover could not. By the time the Duquesne trial rolled around, the FBI was describing in detail, in open court, the cryptographic practices of Hitler's spies. Without realizing it, Hoover, in his reach for adulation, a prerequisite for his relationship to power, was compromising our signal intelligence methods with the enemy. Unlike Elizabeth, the national security implications of publicly detailing our signal intelligence capabilities was something that Hoover refused to prioritize or simply could not understand. Put another way, when it came to intelligence, William Friedman wasn't the only Friedman smarter than old J. Edgar. Elizabeth Friedman was already high on the radar of domestic law enforcement and across the burgeoning U.S. intelligence community. Cracking the comms of the Duquesne spy ring right before Pearl Harbor made her an even brighter, shinier object to the Office of Naval Intelligence and the FBI. She found herself in the intersection of a turf war, and the Navy was demanding to sequester her office out from under the Coast Guard and Treasury. They'd been trying for a while, and she'd been resisting. Elizabeth was perfectly happy where she was. The workload was demanding enough, and she had little affection for the Navy. This was due in part to her affection for Army intelligence, where William worked. In those months before Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt was doing his best to stay out of the war, at least in his public statements and he seemed to be speaking for most Americans. This was a European war, across a vast ocean, and Europe needed to defeat their own fascists. Even the German-American Bund agreed in their propaganda. Hitler didn't want America in the war, so he had his Bundes spread the word that it simply wasn't our problem. He was selling nationalism internationally exactly as America and Europe's far-right parties are doing today. But in this landscape of believing that the war was an ocean away, there was a deep concern growing out of our clandestine services and trickling its way into the president's ear. South America. What if the Nazis got control south of our border? If you haven't heard this before, as it's generally not covered in school textbooks. It may sound kooky. Nazis in South America? Brazil, Bolivia, Chile, Ecuador, Paraguay? Really? Yes, really. With his fifth column, Hitler had already demonstrated the ability to topple foreign nations in Europe. His efforts in our nation were escalating, as evidenced with the Duquesne Ring, 
It may seem a creative leap to the imagination, but Hitler had maps. He could see our border. And we knew he was already seriously swimming around in one place south of it, Argentina. If Meyer Lansky and Longies Wilman had found themselves in Argentina when Hitler's propagandists kicked off their fifth column antics, they would have been overwhelmed. Not necessarily because there were more German Nazi activists or materials of persuasion, but because the Argentinian people were way more into the ideology of Nazism than American Germania. Argentina was Hitler's sweet spot. They'd been German sympathizers during the First World War, the Great War, while somehow maintaining neutrality. And with Hitler's rise in the 1930s, Argentina's sympathies returned in force. Down south, they were dancing with Nazis. Just as America had received a European immigrant wave at the turn of the 19th century, so had South America, and most were Germans. Argentina had a huge influx of German settlers who put down roots in the cities and farmlands, especially around Buenos Aires. The same forces of economic despair that fueled Hitler's rise in the fatherland drove Germans away from it to Argentina, in search of land and work. And boy, did they find it. Close to 150,000 Germans emigrated in the 1920s, and they brought their culture with them as colonists. They established schools, businesses, communities, radio stations and newspapers, and transportation. They had airlines that would take them back to Germany for visits and import empires that brought the fatherland with them to their new world. It was one big embrace, which was, in today's terms, going viral in real life. There were Jewish settlers in Argentina too, and the German youth there were acting on Hitler's propaganda in ways much more violent than the German-American youth in their Nazi military and spy training camps. In 1938, a mob of German Argentinian youth marched into the Jewish quarter of Buenos Aires dressed in Hitler Mussolini cosplay, goose stepping, bare chested like Il Duce, with Adolf's stupid mustache painted on their faces. As Hitler advanced across Europe, toppling nations from the cultural psyche up, with his spy networks and fifth-column advanced tactics. What was happening in South America was raising every alarm inside our own military intelligence community. Roosevelt and his military chiefs were calling it hemisphere defense. The entire Western hemisphere was at risk if Hitler invaded or overtook just one country within it. South America would fall like dominoes, and without the ocean as a barrier between us and them, we were screwed. Then, 
the Japanese struck, we entered the war, and from Roosevelt down, the decision was made, put our best mind on South America. Elizabeth's brain was swept up by the Navy and placed inside Argentina. Metaphorically, of course. A grubby, ramshackle temporary building with its flat roof and thin walls in which the temperatures had risen in those three war summers to many degrees above 100. On one occasion, the thermometer registered 114. But there is a war on, remember, so there was no early closing of offices. That sounds like Argentina, but it was the Naval Intelligence Offices in Washington, D.C., which, with the heat and humidity in the summer, might as well be a jungle closer to Brazil. And it was in those sweltering, ramshackle offices that Elizabeth Friedman cracked the Enigma machine. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. As they had in the First World War, Argentina was publicly staying neutral on the second. For the intelligence side of our war effort, this meant we weren't in a position to gather intelligence through an overt military operation, not that this is how it's done anyway. Still, we wouldn't have an excuse for personnel on the ground. There was no easy human factor in a broad sense, that could be utilized as cover. An American operation would stick out like a sore thumb. Plus, there were just so many Nazis crawling all over that place. We certainly did not want them picking up even the slightest scent of what we knew about what they were doing. The war there would be clandestine. We would be invisible. We had to track, intercept, and disrupt the enemy's actions without being seen. It was the highest form of counterintelligence work. So, of course, J. Edgar Hoover planted his snout in it to root around as if it were his domain. We'll get to him in a minute. A clandestine war is a tricky thing to decipher, digest, and then explain, because it's clandestine. But it's still a war. All of our resources, anything necessary, goes towards the win. At the onset of World War II, for Elizabeth, the effort was more massive than the law enforcement resources that Elmer Irie marshaled for his war against bootleggers and smugglers, our gangsters. Except, this time, she didn't need plane tickets. 
and if she used them, we would never know. Elizabeth was already inside Hitler's intelligence circuits. This means she'd already deciphered communication traffic, signals, sent between any two radio towers that the Germans were using to send coded messages. Dots and dashes of code, usually. She came across them while tracking our smugglers, who were pushing their product through the same ports, using the same radio towers as Hitler's Abwehr at the onset of Germany's war. Remember, Hitler was sending his U-boats close to our shores, testing our neutrality. And as his Nazi captains communicated with each other, Elizabeth was cracking their codes. And she was doing it without the enemy's knowledge that she was even in there. Her clandestine counterespionage work against the Nazis began as early as 1938 and continued on up through our entry into the war, in parallel to her work cracking Duquesne. By the time Elizabeth was put on Argentina, she was more well-versed in counter-spying on foreign spies than likely any American intelligence officer, other than her husband. Her cryptologic unit became our greatest secret agency during the war. And, true patriot as she was, she never spoke of it, outside of calling her work during those years, quote, the spy stuff. It was a vast dome of silence from which I can never return. To illustrate how important an oath of silence was to Elizabeth in protecting our greatest secrets, it was actually Elizabeth Friedman who wrote the oath of office taken by CIA Director Wild Bill Donovan's original spy agencies. President Roosevelt's son, James, was a friend of Elizabeth's. Roosevelt had asked James to help Donovan set up a new office called the Office of Coordinator of Information. This would become the OSS, which then evolved into the CIA. All under Wild Bill. Setting up this original spy office from nothing meant securing the manner in which those who worked at the agency would speak to one another. You know, more spy stuff. Well, both James Roosevelt and Bill and any other man seriously connected to intelligence knew that the person most capable of doing this was Elizabeth Friedman. It was yet another job on her overflowing plate. But she did it, and did it well, and recommended to Bill Donovan an oath of secrecy that each of his agents would take. Likely because of her wretched experience with the press, learning just how compromised a sensitive operation can become when someone's lips are moving. Then she wrote him an example of what it would consist of, and this was the oath that he had all of his first agents take. Elizabeth took that story, too, into her Dome of Silence, 
we would never know the scope of what was in there today if it weren't for a small, seasoned team of NSA officials entrusted by the agency's director to declassify Elizabeth's work decades later. Letting the secrets find the surface so that you and I can learn about this American hero. One of those officials was my uncle. Which is why, on the interview side of our series, we launched it with him. There's so much that Elizabeth Friedman did for our national security across the scope of her career. We've barely touched on it. And I'm not going to be able, in this series, to explain all of the clandestine activity of the bad guys that she cracked and tracked, or the clandestine operations of the good guys that she influenced. Again, I recommend Fagone's book and the Marshall Foundation for you to read and research. But I can try, if you'll forgive me where my brain falls short in comparison to others, to summarize how Elizabeth cracked the Enigma machine and what came from that effort for which she never received any credit. In the trove of messages pinging through the Nazi circuits was something odd. The messages were polyalphabetic, meaning the characters in the coded messages were coming from multiple alphabets. The first letter or number or dash in one sequence was coming from one alphabetic cipher. The next might be coming from another, and the next another, and so on. These kinds of ciphers date back centuries. But now a machine, the German Enigma, was cranking them out. There were several models of Enigma in existence, some known, some not, leading up to the war. Elizabeth even had one in her office at the Coast Guard. To crack an Enigma cipher, you need to have the right model, as it was polyalphabetic, and would have three or more wheels of alphabets whirling and churning into a single message. The keys, or cipher variations, were endless. But our heroine had seen so many ciphers in various configurations across multiple monoalphabetic machines, having more than one alphabet spitting out lines of code was just a matter of tweaking her mind's eye to see it. As Fagon put it, by the time Elizabeth was staring into Enigma, her brain, quote, probably accumulated more training data about codes and ciphers than any other brain on the planet. She had seen so many patterns of ciphers, she was operating in a way similar to the machine learning of artificial intelligence. So much had been registered, deciphered, and cataloged in her mind that she could just see the code. I think of it this way, you know, real simple for me. <laughs> you know those puzzle pictures that are a trick to the eye, where you're looking at an hourglass, but the puzzle question asks if you can see two faces, and you just adjust your brain, and there it is. You see a second image. Well, imagine being smarter than goodwill hunting 
and staring at something that you'd seen in other variations for an entire career. She just adjusted her brain and saw it, saw the Enigma's code. Now, because the Nazis were Nazis, their machines also did something sadistic. They'd change alphabets multiple times, randomly, over the course of a week or even a day. So, even if a codebreaker could crack the message, by the end of the day, the alphabets would change. This meant, for the good guys, to really track the enemy by cracking their codes, you had to have the machine. Elizabeth stacked the Enigma's letters in her columns, tweaked her brain, and cracked that code. She did it so efficiently that she was able to figure out the circuitry of the machine itself and have her team rebuild it, just as William had done with Purple, the Japanese cipher machine. These folks were so brilliant, they could build a replica of a cipher machine simply from taking the code it created, put in front of them on a piece of paper, via a message that was plucked out of thin air. Only when Elizabeth began to build the machine did she realize it was an enigma. Now, the code breakers with Polish intelligence were the first to crack the enigma, followed by Alan Turing at British Intelligence. They made that movie about him. But Elizabeth didn't know this. No one in U.S. intelligence did at the time. She was intercepting these messages and decrypting them as early as 1940, before we had entered the war and were communicating or sharing intelligence with allies. Cracking the Nazi communications without being caught doing so brought a slew of U.S. military and intelligence leaders to Elizabeth's offices, peering over her shoulder, handing her requests. How is she doing this, they wondered. Honestly, I'm not sure they cared to know the specifics. They just knew she was their secret weapon. And that's when Elizabeth encountered that shadow looming behind her as he had with her husband, but without the fine wine. Turns out J. Edgar Hoover had learned a new term and saw the value of turning it into his new favorite concern. It would be his ticket to finally outperforming Elmer Irie. Hemisphere Defense There's not much from J. Edgar on his knowledge or interactions with Elizabeth Friedman. And when it comes to the work Elizabeth did during the war effort, the spy stuff, she certainly wasn't talking. Elizabeth placed herself in that dome of silence, and there she would stay. But if we collect the data points on her career and match them to the big moments of Hoover's early years, we see a picture that makes it impossible to believe he wasn't fully aware of her since her days of helping Irie catch and then publicly 
testify against the gangsters that eluded Hoover. Eventually, J. Edgar Hoover would realize what Elizabeth could do for him. He'd just have to get past his pathological misogyny to accept and acknowledge the strength of her abilities in order to use them. And it was President Roosevelt who cleared the path for him to do so. Fully aware of Elizabeth's work decrypting the Nazis' codes, as in Duquesne, Hoover made his pitch to Roosevelt, leaning in to the president's fixation on hemisphere defense. Because Hoover had been building a reputation in the press, real or hyperbolic, on his ability to catch spies domestically, he argued to Roosevelt for his abilities to track and catch spies internationally. He demanded the authority to do so from the President of the United States and focused on South America. Roosevelt granted it, giving the FBI sweeping authority to go hunt the enemy outside of U.S. borders. Now, we've already covered how this act was motivated, in large part, by J. Edgar Hoover's hunt for Lepke Buchalter, a Meyer and Lucky underboss who controlled the garment industry. That was for the gangster-grabbing part of J. Edgar's ego power trip and headlines. But Mr. Brooks Brothers' Steak and Caesar Salad wasn't content to stop there with gangsters. In all that I've read on him, Hoover appeared obsessed with his legacy from an early age, and his legacy obsession becomes viciously competitive with a deep dive on Elmer Irie, who bested Hoover in his day at every turn. So much so, Irie earned the cover of Life magazine years later with a headline declaring him the world's greatest detective. Can you imagine the real estate that Irie occupied in J. Edgar's brain? Of course he knew that it was Elizabeth Friedman, who was Elmer Irie's Treasury Department's secret weapon in taking down gangsters. She was famous too. For Hoover's legacy to be cemented as the greatest detective, the greatest lawman on earth, that meant he had to be able to catch not just the gangsters, but the slipperiest of the slippery criminals. He wanted to catch the spies. Thus, the Special Intelligence Service, the FBI's Global Counterintelligence Division, was born. And Hoover sent his men straight to Argentina. And there, they fucked everything up. They didn't know what they were doing. They were detectives, not spies. They had no real headquarters, didn't have contacts there, didn't even speak Spanish. They were bumbling around like a hand with five sore thumbs. This was no way to collect vital intelligence and thwart an enemy's own clandestine efforts, especially one as formidable as Abfair. 
Remember that rule about being in a clandestine war? Meant being able to be invisible? Yeah. J. Edgar's SIS weren't that. It was as laughable as the FBI and Navy's undercover activity on Luciano's docks in Naval Intelligence 3rd District. Just as Haffenden quickly realized that Naval Intelligence needed the mob to help thwart fifth column attacks on our shorelines, albeit because Meyer and Lucky laid that trap themselves. J. Edgar Hoover realized he needed a codebreaker to help guide his agency's activity down south. He realized this when it dawned on him that he'd gotten the president to okay his special international spy detective agency, but all he had was a crime lab that processed fingerprints and murder weapons. He had no listening stations, therefore he had no intercepts, and no code breakers to interpret the intercepts. He had no intelligence to his intelligence. So, he went and got Elizabeth's help. That's what it took for J. Edgar Hoover to work with a woman. The threat of complete failure on the world stage during a world war because he'd convinced a president to send him up the creek without a paddle. Elizabeth would go on to coordinate signal intelligence efforts across a spectrum of agencies engaged in the clandestine war in South America, just as she had done with the Treasury, coordinating across six different domestic law agencies when hunting the syndicate. Although technically under a male boss at the Navy, the Navy didn't allow women to lead departments in her era. The code-breaking unit was Elizabeth's operation and she would use it to single-handedly keep South America from falling to the Nazis. Elizabeth had determined that the Nazis had at least three radio stations up and running in South America. Each was communicating to stations back in the Fatherland, and the communications were directions for on-the-ground human intelligence operatives and the Nazi operations to orchestrate the expansion of the Axis powers in South America, Argentina and Brazil primarily. With that subversion, the end goal was to surround us. Yes, absolutely, Hitler was planning to take the Western Hemisphere. And he didn't need to send troops over an ocean to do it. He just needed his own countries in our hemisphere, like Argentina, to side with him. And to achieve that, he was using spies. Now, Elizabeth's help to Hoover was, in essence, his authority to be able to make requests of her office and use whatever material she provided for him in any manner he deemed fit. This spelled disaster number two. And because we'd now entered the war, the disaster was catastrophic. Hoover needed press in order for everyone to understand how important he was. 
And to get press, he wanted arrests. Big ones that brought big headlines. Sweeping up spy networks in South America and shutting down Nazi radio stations, level headlines. So he used Elizabeth's intelligence products to get it. In March 1942, Hoover conducted a spy raid that, in effect, exposed our knowledge of both the Nazi spies and their radio stations. It got him his headline, and it broke our position and advantage in the clandestine war. Every head of military intelligence was enraged. Our allies were enraged. No one liked Hoover anyway, especially the Brits. The reason for that is a whole other season. But this? All that work, all that opportunity, with the stakes of a world war on the table. And that fat cat bastard flushed it down the drain for a headline. Even worse, during the arrests, his agents were showing the Nazi spies what our spies knew about them. In effect, Hoover showed the enemy our own methods of tracking them during a war. That was it. Hoover was out. Although, because of the power Roosevelt had given him, our military and intelligence leaders could not remove Hoover's agency from the world stage, they could, and did, freeze him out. No information received by the Coast Guard or anyone else Elizabeth was continuing to work with made its way to J. Edgar Hoover, wherever that could be helped. In April, the Coast Guard, Naval Intelligence, Army Intelligence, British Secret Services, and the Canadians all met in Washington to work out exactly how they would move forward to share intelligence as allies during the war in the most secure manner possible. Elizabeth was there. Hoover was not. Imagine the task on her shoulders as she left that meeting. First, Elizabeth had to reset all of her work because the Nazis had reset all of theirs, changing every aspect of their clandestine activities that Hoover had showed them we were privy to. Next, she had to do that very difficult work, repenetrating Abwehr's networks to thwart their efforts to gain control over South America. Then, she had to find ways to keep all of that from J. Edgar when he came knocking, with the help of the other agencies with which she was coordinating. Well, she succeeded. She even came up against Affair's most notorious spies, one of whom was working with Juan Domingo Perón, who would become Argentina's president. Cracking the spy's identity and tracking him into Perón's inner circle 
led our intelligence services to know that the Argentines had hashed out an informal deal with the Nazis via the spies. That operation was led by a spy who Elizabeth had decrypted in the intercepts, codenamed Sargo. Sargo was advancing Hitler's orders to go full fifth column in South America. Leading from Argentina, he was successfully working towards a five-block force of nations who would plot, sabotage, and coups to turn one government after the next into an access power. The stated goal that Elizabeth decrypted? Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, Paraguay, and Uruguay would draw in Brazil, then take the continent. That meant invading and conquering us. Roosevelt was right. The Western Hemisphere needed defending. Knowing what the enemy's plans are, who their people are, like Sargo, what the status is in enacting an operation like that, is what allows us to thwart it, which we did, with our on-the-ground spies. But here's where we know this would have never happened without Elizabeth. Those Nazi intercepts, along with so many others, with threats of the highest magnitude, came from the German cipher machines, including a new enigma. When the Nazis learned from their spies and the headlines that we knew about their spy networks in South America, they employed a new Enigma machine. And because of Elizabeth's experience cracking the old one, she had just the right brain to crack the new one. She just saw the code and smashed it. Once she had, we had all of Abfer's communications on clandestine activities in South America. It was enough to give our military intelligence leaders what they needed to craft one counter-espionage operation after the next, including learning Sargo's real name and stopping him by capturing his associates. In short order, the Abfer network in South America was frustrated and defeated. Allied officials, British and American diplomats, brought down the hammer that J. Edgar failed to swing. They showed the Argentinian officials the clear evidence of their clandestine activity and partnership with the Nazi spies and gave them the choice to stop while they could. These secrets would not fare well on the global stage. Properly spooked, Argentina eventually turtled its way back into a true corner of neutrality and waited out the war. The Western Hemisphere was defended, and our girl did it. 
all from her ramshackle offices in D.C., just down the street from Harvey's restaurant, where the women were relegated to a separate dining room so that the men could pour their fine wine from their private tables while conjuring up their superhero fantasies of saving the world. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman, editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to season one, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and our sit-down episodes on Thursdays wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.